know what I wish? I wish I could lock myself in a room and write today's show without any distractions. The problem is the internet is a constant distraction, but I'm writing the show on Google Docs, which means I've got to be connected to the internet. So I'll write the intros and the outros and all the connective tissue that makes an episode, but my attention will wander, either because my phone's text messages show up on my desktop or because I'm tabbing over to the music player that's keeping me company. But for as distracting as they are, I'm not sure I could have had the fortitude that Aaron Lee Rosenberg had when he avoided the internet for an entire year. Today on Northwards, we'll find out what sparked that challenge and what he learned from a year spent offline. Later, we'll meet Jim Burry, the guy with the unlikely and unofficial title of Poet Laureate of Dickinson Center, and hear about his lifelong journey to becoming a published poet. Northwards comes your way next from the studios of North Country Public Radio. This is Northwards, the monthly interview show coming to you from North Country Public Radio. I'm Mitch Tyke. Part of the deal with being a card-carrying member of Generation X is that we're the last generation to have grown up without the Internet. My school got a computer when I was in fifth grade, and I was one of the lucky people who got to learn a computing language called BASIC. But I was 25 years old before I got my first email address, and probably 27 when I could first listen to a song being streamed over the internet in low fidelity. At the time, if you wanted to read the news, your best bet was to go buy a newspaper from the machine on the corner. And if you wanted to listen to music, I would have said the radio or the record store was a good place to start. I am not 27 anymore. In fact, I am exactly double that. And to produce this little introduction, I had to log on to a computer network that is, well, somewhere. And as I'm producing it, I'm streaming a soccer game that was played last weekend in Germany on the second computer monitor on my desk. And I've just asked my smart speaker across the room about the weather forecast. Yeah, the internet has gone from zero to 80 in half of my lifetime. It's difficult to imagine giving it up for an afternoon, unless I found a really good record store. Aaron Lee Rosenberg gave it up, and for a lot longer than an afternoon. It was a whole year, and not just any year. He didn't use the internet for all of 2020, when the rest of us were all hitting refresh on our browsers every 18 seconds. And he kept a journal of the year, which makes up his new book called Jacking Out. He lives across the border in Montreal, and fortunately for us, he is back on the internet, and he joined us by Zoom. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks so much for having me. So I'm sure this is the first question you get from everyone, Um, but let's go back to the fall of 2019, or maybe even the months before that. Uh, What was happening that led you to plan this year offline? I uh, grew up in a very tech-saturated world. My dad is a techie guy, and we always had the latest gadgets, and I had my first uh, web page when I was 12, and I'm part of that generation that really embraced everything digital as soon as it was available to me. And uh, then I spent a few years as a high school teacher in Western Canada. And while I was teaching high school, I started to realize that even though I wasn't that much older than my students, like I was maybe 10 or 15 years older than they were, I had a very different relationship with my device than they did. And on the one hand, I started to realize that there was actually a lot of really beautiful, important, meaningful things that these young people were doing with their devices. But I also noticed uh, that a lot of them had a really intense time trying to separate themselves from those devices. And I would be really upfront with my students and ask them, like, do you think it would be better if you left your phone in your locker? Or do you think it'd be better if we don't have the phones on our desks? And students, I think, were trying to be honest with me, too. And a lot of them shared 
they thought it'd be more distracting to not have their phone on them. And that sort of confused me in a way that made me want to learn more. And I started realizing that um, the way that young people relate to their phones, it's so central to a lot of the way they socialize and how they see themselves, that the idea of not having it on them actually for some of them is a bigger distraction than having it on them. Um, so for my for my pedagogical or educational <laughs> philosophy, I was like, no, I can't just ban cell phones. I've got to try to support students to use them meaningfully and responsibly. And I realized I didn't really know what that looked like. So when I started grad school again, I was very struck by the fact that I had a unique uh, privileged position as a grad student with funding that I could actually, if I wanted to, I could be like, hey, I'm, I'm not going to check my email for the next year. I'm going to try to participate in all the educational expectations that are on me as a grad student, but do it without the internet and see in 2020 what that looks like. Because of course, when I talk to a lot of people about that, they're like, well, I did all of my grad school without the internet. And I'm like, yeah, but that was in the 70s and it's, <laughs> it's normal. Um, so it was a, it was more, I think, a bit of an experiment to see what would happen and how it would affect my, both my studies, like academically, but also just my social life and my relationships. Well, and I feel like this is jumping ahead a little bit, but we kind of get that window into what it must have been like with your high school students um, throughout some of this book in your relationship with, I guess it's your nephew, right? Uh, who well, it's is my little cousin? He's my little first cousin. cousin. Okay. So, yeah. Yeah, so your cousin, who is like seven or eight, and uh, and the internet is is all he knows. Yeah, and when you talk to him about the internet, and even today now he's a, a couple years older, but he still has a very difficult time differentiating what is the internet and what's not the internet. Mm -hmm. And so I think a lot of young people, and even people our age and demographic, we don't necessarily keep track of what's online, what's offline. Like even a radio interview, of course, it used to be something that would have been offline, but as I've had a lot of radio interviewers tell me, now all of the all of the connections to the internet are essential for this being broadcast, and not only on the radio, but it's also broadcast online through podcasts. And it would be pretty impossible to do radio interviews today without the internet. Yeah, well, and I think about the ground rules you set for this uh, for this experiment, and I mean, it was basically one ground rule, right? You you weren't going to use you you didn't use anything connected to the internet. Yeah, and the other ground rule was I couldn't ask people to do things online for me. So I was very tempted a lot for little things like finding out the weather. I was always like, oh, I wonder if I need to bring an umbrella out with me today. But luckily, my partner and my friends were very, uh, they played along with my rules and they would say, nope, not going <laughs> to fall for that one. And so I really had to figure out alternatives to, to doing a lot of the really casual everyday things we don't even realize or think about are using internet power. Well, right. We, th we think about this phrase, the, the internet of things, and as it plays out in your journal and, and it dawns on the reader, how much is actually connected besides the things that are obviously, obviously connected like Google and Netflix and email and whatever. There are, there are lots of things like as the, as the year progresses, all the menus at restaurants you were trying to go to yeah were QR code based. Yeah, and often I actually would leave a restaurant when I would ask them for the paper menu. And surprisingly, maybe because of COVID or maybe because of other reasons, lots of restaurants were like, no, we actually don't have a paper menu anymore. And because of the rule where I couldn't ask people to do things online for me, I couldn't get my friends to order. So I would just leave the restaurant. And I think that um, when you brought up the Internet of Things, I think there's a, a weird phenomenon today where we assume that everything needs the Internet to function, like the smart TV, the smart printer, and I, uh, while I was offline, I bought a printer and it actually said on the box that it needed the internet to function, that it needed Wi-Fi. And so I asked one of the technicians at the shop, and this was, I think, in either December 2019 or January 2020, I said, it says you need Wi-Fi to set it up. 
And the, the person was like, oh, no, no, that's just if you want to register it. You can use it, like plug it into your computer. <laughs> and I was like, but it says on the box that like, Wi-Fi required. And so I think there's um, partially maybe so that these big tech companies can have as much of our data available to them for marketing purposes. But also, I think there's just this sense that like, oh, yeah, the Internet's normal now. And that normalizing of the Internet for everyday things, I think on the one hand, it makes it so important that we ensure that people have equitable access to the Internet. But I also think it means we have to start thinking about what are the repercussions, both for our own mental health and for like the environment, but also for the exploitative labor that is involved in a lot of the tech processes we take for granted. And I guess one of the other things that comes across is is not just like the, the casual nature of what's connected to the Internet, but the casual nature of time we spend on the Internet, the time we're lying in bed or, or on a bus or, or even in the bathroom. Yeah. A lot of my friends, when I ask them, do they have downtime? They ask me, like, what do you mean by downtime? Like, time I'm scrolling on my phone? I'm like, no, no, explicitly not that. Like, time when you aren't adding any more inputs to your brain, where you're not, like, reading something or listening to something. Time when you're actually just sitting with your own thoughts and letting them, like, process or unfold in the ways that they might. And most people I know have none of that kind of downtime. They're If they're not on their phone, then they're socializing. If they're not doing one of those two things, they're probably working. And the fact that it's almost like a compulsive thing for most people, like I've chatted with people who say it's muscle memory. They don't plan to take out their phone and start scrolling on Instagram or TikTok or Reddit, but rather it's just something that happens to them when they're sitting and they're not doing something else. And I, I feel like without that kind of time, we must, there must be some repercussions for how we are for our mental health, but also for how effective we are and how respectful we are when we socialize and engage with work or with academia. You read a lot about your friendships and, and, in fact, some of the tenuous nature of those friendships. Uh, do you think not having Internet made your personal relationships any more rewarding? So a really difficult question. It's pretty hard to maintain a lot of friendships and relationships without the Internet. That being said, while I was offline, I was using my phone. I was um, I was doing a lot of letter writing, and I was able to keep connected to the people I cared about. But a lot of the relationships that weren't those really primary ones that I was making that active effort, they did fall away or were harder to maintain. There's a lot of uh, casual kind of friendship things like liking somebody's post or sharing some newsfeed article or something. Those types of uh, casual ways that we connect and that nowadays are, are pretty common were pretty impossible to me during the offline year. So I think on the one hand, it was actually harder to do a lot of the things that people were doing, especially with COVID and with like the Zoom trivia nights everyone had. But the types of friendships and relationships that I was nurturing, I think were stronger for it. Uh, one little anecdote about that is um, even though there was lockdown and we weren't really able to socialize when there was brief periods where we had uh, we were where we were allowed to invite a couple other people into our bubble. I played a lot of Scrabble that year and. <laughs> Uh, when I had friends over to play Scrabble, I realized that nobody was taking their phone out. And I brought it up at one point with, I think my partner was there and one other friend. And I was like, why aren't, why aren't you guys using your phones today? And they were like, oh, I, I thought it'd be rude to you. And so there was this weird, like, I didn't ever say to them, please don't use your phones around me. But because I was doing this experiment, people were sort of trying to play along in, in small ways. And I found that in that space where we were playing Scrabble, we had dictionaries out to look up words when we challenged one another, it did really feel like we were connecting in this way that was slower, that felt very much like we weren't waiting for the thing that was going to happen next. We were just there together. And I know for myself with my smartphone, or sorry, not my smartphone, but with my cell phone, um, I still don't have a smartphone, uh, but even just with a, a flip phone, I find I'm often when I'm socializing, if I get a text message or I know something else is happening later in the day, 
my mind goes there and it's thinking about everything that I might be doing next. And I think without that possibility, like when, when you have those boundaries and aren't engaging digitally in that way, you're able to be present for one another in a way that I think for most of human civilization <laughs> was probably quite normal. But now we're, uh, we're a different species. We've sort of become this species on the go, always on guard, not knowing what's coming down the drain at a moment's notice. Well, and, and when you're playing Scrabble and, and people are consciously keeping their phones in their pockets or their bags or, or their cars or wherever, you must have felt a little like the, the, the guy who's just quit smoking or quit drinking <laughs> and people are consciously not smoking or drinking around him. Yeah, I mean, there is this funny thing about tech that we don't think of it as a bad habit. Like, I think maybe there's more um, awareness now about not overusing tech, but no one would ever be like, oh, having your phone is a unhealthy thing in the same way that having a cigarette is. And yet now I think when I was offline, I started to realize that like, of course, there's some really intentional, beautiful ways that people are using their devices. But a majority of the screen time that most of my friends and family have aren't those beautiful, intentional things. They're just these compulsive things. And they contribute, I think, to a lot of the anxiety and a lot of the misinformation that we are realizing is causing a lot of issues today, politically, environmentally, and socially. I guess I'm not 100% sure how to ask this question, but I don't want to tiptoe around it either. So maybe I'll just ask it this way. How central do you think your queer identity was to shaping that year? That's a really cool question and one that I've never been asked. I think that one of the things as a young queer person I realized is that a lot of the expectations the society had for me just weren't going to fit. Like the idea of me marrying a woman wasn't going to happen. <laughs> so when you start questioning some of the really foundational expectations that your family and community and society have for you, you're able to actually start questioning other ones too. And I find um, I have Israeli family and I'm a very big advocate for Palestinian uh, solidarity work. And so when I have traveled to Palestine to volunteer and work with Palestinian organizations, I'm always surprised how many queer people, how many queer Jewish people are there. And so I think that was one of the first times when I was traveling in the West Bank where I realized, oh, being queer isn't just about your sexual orientation or your gender identity. It also translates to all sorts of other political and ideological ways that we interact with the world. So when I uh, think about being offline, I think that is a pretty queer move to be like, hey, everyone else I know or almost everyone else I know is diving deep into the internet as COVID-19 lockdowns hit everybody. And I was like, hmm, I guess I don't need to fulfill that expectation because I had already had maybe practice at rejecting some social expectations. So I, I love that question, Mitch. Like, I think being queer probably made me more open to doing something weird and queer like, like spending a year offline. Well, the other interesting thing is you just mentioned COVID there, and I, I, I didn't go through the book with a fine-tooth comb, but I don't remember you ever kind of coming right out and talking about COVID itself. That's a that's a very acute observation of you. <laughs> I, um, I actually made a point of not mentioning COVID in the book. Of course, COVID is a huge part of the book yeah. because all of the digital changes that were happening in 2020 wouldn't have happened in the same way without it. But I realized as I was putting together the book from all my journal entries that we all experienced COVID, we all know that story, and we were all a part of it in a way that was pretty intense and, and for some people definitely traumatizing. And I didn't want my book to be uh, an upsetting read. I want it to be, a, as, as you open the conversation, I want it to be a bit more of a thought-provoking read. So I decided to leave out the explicit mention of COVID, and of course it was there under the surface. But I think that the uh, importance of how our digital lives have been changing is something beyond COVID. COVID definitely exacerbated things and sped things along. It made it so that we embraced tech and digital options without really thinking about, oh, is this something we want to embrace? Because at the time we had to embrace it. 
But now that we're back at a place where COVID isn't the thing driving tech innovations, I think we now have to go back a little bit and think like, hey, what were the changes that happened that we really did need and want to continue with? And what were the ones that we might want to move, uh, think, rethink? Like the one you brought up earlier about the QR codes at menus. In Montreal, where I live, a lot of menus or a lot of restaurants still use QR code menus. And when you go to a nice dinner with your family or friends and everyone starts the uh, the dinner with their phone in their hand, like trying to zoom in at the <laughs> menu item, it changes the feel. And I, I know that for me growing up, we were a very like no phone calls at the table dinner people. Like if the phone rang, we would let it ring at dinner. And I think that that's really changed with both QR codes, but also like the smart watches that a lot of people have. Like we've started to normalize a lot of um, ways that digital uh, practices are creeping into our everyday lives. And some of those are really good and others I think we need to push back on. We'll take a short break. And when we come back, we will continue our conversation with Aaron Lee Rosenberg about his year spent offline. This is Northwards from NCPR. NCPR's Northwards is supported by Piano by Nature, featuring a weekend of music by Vermont composer Dennis Bathory Kitts, October 6th through 8th in Elizabethtown and Plattsburgh. Details at pianobynature.org. By The Book Nook, an independent bookstore located on Broadway in Saranac Lake. On Facebook at SL Book Nook. And by Claxton Hepburn Medical Center and its surgical services team performing robotic, general, and minimally invasive procedures. ClaxtonHepburn.org. with Northwards from North Country Public Radio. I'm Mitch Tyke, and back with more of our conversation with Aaron Lee Rosenberg, who spent all of the year 2020 entirely offline. No internet, no using his friends to look things up, no scanning a QR code to read a restaurant menu. His new book is called Jacking Out, a Journal of a Year Spent Offline. 2020 was, of course, a pretty breathtaking year to be offline. Um, If you had known what was coming that year, would you have still taken on this project? No, I don't think so. I think that if I had known that we were going to be facing such a tragic and globally like uh, shape-shifting phenomenon, I think I would have probably delayed and tried to think about how I could maybe gear my research towards the t- changes that were happening during COVID. I don't want to sound um, so privileged, but I am I'm glad that I was offline for that year because it did allow me to have a bit of an insulation from the types of doom scrolling and misinformation and conspiracy theories that were really rampant online that year. So I think personally, in a bit of a selfish way, it was actually sort of nice being (laughs) offline for 2020. I think there are a lot of us that kind of wish they were offline for parts of 2020. (laughs) Yeah, I definitely had a lot of friends who were overwhelmed. And I think how much they were overwhelmed was directly related to how much media they were consuming. And I was only able to get my media mostly from the radio and a few channels that I'm able to pick up here in Montreal, a few TV channels. But, um, But yeah, I think that I think that if I had known what was coming, I would have tried to gear my focus and my research towards something more aligned with that. Yeah, for sure. Your nightmares throughout the year, um, at least the ones you wrote about, uh, they all seem to be about accidentally going online. Yeah. So a lot of people ask me, like, did you ever almost go online or like accidentally use the internet or like really want to go online? And it wasn't like that at all. I didn't have any like 
inclination to go online. It was actually really nice to have that really firm rule for myself. And yet my brain or my subconscious seemed like it really was worried <laughs> about that. And throughout the year, I had lots of these nightmares where I'd wake up in a cold sweat thinking I had, I had just checked my email and then look around me and realize I was in bed and I had dreamt it. But I'm um, someone who doesn't doesn't really give dreams too much of a, like, I'm not like, okay, my dream is some sort of magical representation of X, Y, Z. But I do think it's our brain trying to work through something. And so I'm so, sort of curious, and if any of your listeners are uh, psychoanalysts and can can read my book and tell me about my dreams, I'm curious, what why was I constantly dreaming about this horrible experience of going online, especially when it wasn't something I was worried about in my waking life? Well, and 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 in contrast, I think a lot of us were having nightmares about COVID or about right. all the all the many other you know uh, potential doom fantasies we were having uh, that year, and so that that was you know one of your apparent you know central subconscious concerns is maybe a little refreshing. Yeah, it's <laughs> funny how pedestrian or how like like low stakes that is. Just going online for most people is like, yeah, that's what I do every day. So it is interesting that that became like the be all and end all of horror for me in a year that was actually really a horrific year in more more real ways. So I want to ask about the end of the year and maybe start with a personal comparison here. Um, about 25 years ago, um, I was actually living here in northern New York uh, when the region had its huge ice storm. Right. Um, and here, uh, actually in this, you know, very station where I'm talking to you from, we were without power for eight days and there were people in the region who were, you know, three weeks without power. Um, and I remember the moment, you know, we had generators here, so there were some, some little incandescent lights we had and we were operating the station, but there's a moment at which the fluorescent lights came back on, you know, they, they flickered for a couple seconds and then suddenly everything was bathed in the usual light that it had been in, you know, for years before that. And it was a bit of a letdown. And, and at the same time, you know, there was this little part of me that was swearing that the stuff I had and, and that we had all gained from surviving those days would stay with me. And, and they did for maybe three days. <laughs> what was the reacclimation process like for you? And how much of that year do you think is still shaping the way you approach technology today? That's a really cool question. And I think the comparison with the ice storm is, is very apt because, yeah, this, this feeling of not having what you need is very, um, can be very frustrating. But then when you get used to it and acclimatized to it, then when it comes back and you're back to your old normal approach to life, it can be a bit disappointing in a way that is a bit surprising. Because, I mean, this idea of not having the internet, just logically, it's like, well, that would be worse than having the internet, right? <laughs> but when you get so used to the type of life pace and the kinds of interactions I was having and the way that I was able to read books in like very slow kind of minute detail, it when that was over and I realized I had to re-engage in my studies in a much more fast-paced way. I had to commit to a lot more of co collaborative kind of work that I was not putting off, but that I was doing in a slower pace while I was offline. It was quite stressful. And I remember that moment where I first opened up my emails and saw over, I think it was like over 2,800 unread messages. It was a horrible feeling. And I actually, it was probably a little bit cheeky, but I just immediately closed my browser and went for a walk. And while I was on that walk, I remember my mom called and we had chatted on the phone like every, you know, two or three days throughout the year, as we normally do. But as soon as I was back online, she says, so when are you ready to do a FaceTime? And I was like, um, can we hold that? Like we do that like maybe in a couple of days or in a week. 
and she was like oh no i just really want to see your face like it's you know it's just really nice and i know we chat all the time like, we're chatting right now but it would just be different to see your face and i didn't realize how stressful that would make me feel or how stressed out it would make me feel and if my mom's listening, mom, you know, I love you and I'm happy for you to see my face, whatever we can make it happen. <laughs> but there is something about that uh, expectation to be connected in this more intense way that makes it feel like, I don't know, a little bit claustrophobic or a little bit like, I don't know how I'm going to keep this up and do everything else I need to do with my life. Because I, I was still a busy person while I was offline. But when the internet allows us to do so much more, it feels like we have to do that much more in order to keep up with the people around us. So I think uh, right away, as you pointed out, the first few days, I really pushed back and allowed myself to take some time to reacclimatize without it being too overwhelming. But pretty quickly, as I got back online, I started realizing that I didn't have the self-control I needed in order to avoid doom scrolling or just spending too much time responding to emails or scrolling on social media. And one of the things that came out of this year offline is the realization that spending a year offline is actually sort of easy compared to just having regular day-to-day self-control, regular day-to-day strategies to practice moderation. And that practice, it does take practice. Like the idea of being moderate and trying to use your cell phone or your laptop in a way that feels good, that's not going to come naturally. There's a lot of money being put towards us overusing our devices, like the marketing or the psychological programming that compels us to use our devices. That's a pretty powerful force. And if we want to be able to push back on that, we need to practice it in small ways on a regular basis. So as you'll find in the end of the book, I had a pretty rough January 2021. I realized pretty quickly that I didn't have any more of that self-control, that I'd lost it all by spending a year offline. So on the one hand, the year offline did not hold up in the way I was hoping. It didn't didn't gird me for those types of uh, temptations. But on the other hand, I still did have a lot of the realizations or awarenesses that I had gathered during that year. So I was able, after about a month of really falling into that pattern of spending way too much time online, I was able to remind myself of why I had done the experiment in the first place. And that piece of being more intentional and using our devices in responsible ways that we feel good about and that don't necessarily have all the negative impacts for our world that became something that I focused on in a much more explicit way in order to force myself to start practicing more of those self-control pieces. But I still don't have a smartphone, as I mentioned. And I think with the inclinations or with the the temptations to use devices, it's sometimes easier to make more of those like very bold sort of drastic changes. So not having a smartphone sets up a pretty firm boundary. Yeah, I mean, it's like the, the... The thing about social media is not, you know, the 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 argument it makes is not that you can be in touch with everyone; it's that you should be in touch with everyone right. all the time. And, and reminding you feel like you us, have to be. right, right, and maybe reminding us that that it really is can and not should. Um, right. But yeah, putting that into practice is is another is another story entirely. Yeah, trying to find that balance it's not the easiest, but it's so important. Yeah, yeah. Well. Um, Aaron Lee Rosenberg, I, I'm just glad that you're back online so that we could have this conversation. Well, I really appreciate you inviting me on the show, and it's been really a great time talking to you. Your questions were a lot more uh, sophisticated than a lot of the other ones I've been getting, and it was a lot of fun to think through them. Aaron Lee Rosenberg lives in Montreal. His new book is called Jacking Out, A Journal of a Year Spent Offline. He is, of course, back online, which is how he joined us by Zoom. One more break, and then we travel to Malone to speak with poet Jim Bury. This is Northwards from North Country Public Radio.
NCPR's Northwards is supported by Renew Architecture and Design, offering custom design services from the St. Lawrence River Valley to the Adirondacks. More at renewarchitecture.com. And by Planned Parenthood, providing confidential counseling, education, advocacy, and a 24-hour hotline to their Sexual Assault Services Program in Clinton, Essex, and Franklin Counties. Your business or organization can also support Northwards for any of NCPR's programs. And it's easier than you might expect. Find out more by emailing us at underwriting at ncpr.org. More of Northwards Now coming to you from North Country Public Radio. I'm Mitch Tyke. And a little confession here. I came to appreciate poetry late in life or, you know, later in life well after my college days when they were teaching us about poetry. When I was younger, poetry sometimes intimidated me, sometimes frustrated me in school. Why couldn't these poets just write in complete sentences and without so many darn metaphors? I got over that, though, and while I am still not one to camp out in a dark room and write poetry, I do appreciate how we can connect with a good poem. Jim Borey didn't wait as long to appreciate poetry, but he falls into the category of coming to be a published poet later in life. These days, he has his poetic eyes trained on his surroundings in the North Country. He describes himself as the self-appointed poet laureate of Dickinson Center. And while that is an honorary title, he is hard at work in the borderlands, helping to make poetry part of life in places like Malone and Potsdam. If you are going to meet up with a poet for an interview, it should be at a coffee shop. And so I met Jim Bury at a quaint little place in Malone known as Tim Hortons to talk with him about the place of poetry in his life, his history, and the life and history of the North Country. Thank you so much for meeting me here. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, I guess the question I have, it's, it's really easy to imagine um, poets plying their trade in places like, you know, maybe... Paris or London or Brooklyn or uh, or even like Burlington, Vermont. Is there a poetry to to northern New York and rural America that people you don't think people appreciate? I do. I actually, uh, the uh, North Country, it's loaded, and there are some recognized poets. Uh, there's Roger Mitchell down in Jay, New York, who is uh, nationally known. But most of us up here, we don't get even the academics don't get too much recognition. So. <laughs> But, and I'm nowhere near academic, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and I wonder if there's, a, if there's a certain inspiration for poetry that's maybe, maybe closer to the surface in a place like rural America. Well, yeah, yeah you've got, uh, well, for, first of all, you have nature, of course, but you also have a lot of hard times up here. <laughs> so uh, that's an inspiring thing, too. So. Yeah, and speaking of hard times, I, I gather... Uh, one of the projects you're working on right now is about uh, is, is a history project, a history right. poetry project about a particular community that's really kind of experienced hard times yep. over the years. Yep. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm working on a thematic uh, collection of poems. Uh, has to do with the Lion Mountain Standish area. It's uh, hopefully I'm trying to capture the voices of a lot of the people that went through the rise and the fall, which was actually fell back in the 60s. It was 1967 when it went down. But uh, yeah, and there's a lot of towns just like Glen Mountain up this way. Uh, Mineville, Port Henry is another one. But they, they had mines or they had other kinds of industries that were 
really strong, and then they went right down the tubes uh, as the ninth to twentieth century came to an end there. So, well, and the 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 poem I've seen uh, is a is I guess what's called a found poem um, that uh, that consists of, of dialogue. I can't remember the name of oh, the yeah. poem itself, um, but uh, you have but a good the... memory. That's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I've, I've recorded poems. Uh, written poems of uh, things I've overheard in, uh, I work at the Line Mountain Museum on yeah. uh, Wednesdays or Saturdays sometimes, and uh, when people come in, they tell stories, and I, all I do is listen to their stories, and I try to capture their voices in a poem, yeah, yeah. You're sitting in a corner while they're talking and hoping they're not noticing you take notes? <laughs> I usually, uh, I can, uh, even though I'm 76, I still remember some things. So it's, it works pretty well. Well, and presumably you're the poet. You can, you can take artistic license if exactly. you need to make the lines work yeah. a little bit better. We can lie as long as we tell the truth. That's, that's what we do. What's your hope for what comes out of that? Um, a little bit of history. But I, I, I want to show the experience of, uh, of first of all, the early, uh, the early miners had a, it was a really, really hard place to live. It was very, very difficult. But they, they, they kind of tamed, the ter- it was like a Wild West, but the, te- the territory got tamed, you know. So I want to tell that story. But then there was this, there was some pr- uh, great prosperity for several years. Um, World War II, the, the mining community was really, really prosperous. And it was a good place to work if you could get through the conditions of being underground and so forth. But it was always dangerous. But then there was a decline, and I, I've been talking to quite a few people who lived through that part of it. And the, the, there was a, a fear, there was an underlying fear of what's coming next, you know. So I, I want to try and tell that story. I think it's an important story of, of a rise and fall of a, a, a small community. It's, it's a, I think it needs to be heard. Yeah. Tell me about your journey to becoming a poet. I, I, I hear it's, um, it's, it's not one that, you know, I don't know if there, I don't know if there's a typical way that, that someone becomes a poet. But you, uh, you've sort of fallen into this uh, life uh, later in, in your chronology. Yeah, quite a bit. Uh, I was, I've always written poetry. I started, well, when I was in high school. Um, but uh, I never tried to get anything published. And then uh, life kind of got in the way. Uh, uh, had to earn a living. And even though I kept writing, I never really tried to get out there. And I really didn't get too deeply into poetry until I retired. I was fortunate I could retire when I was 60 years old. and. Um, that's when I started to study, and I found a mentor. I found uh, uh, she guided me through uh, what to read. Kind of gave me a uh, off the books MFA, if you will. <laughs> and, uh, and there were worse things to get. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh, it worked out. And I went to a lot of workshops, did a lot of study, and it it, it worked out. Um, and then shortly after I retired, I had a, ch- a chapbook published, and then I. A couple others came along after that, so three others actually. Wow. What, what, what were the kinds of jobs that you worked over the okay, years? Okay, well, I came out of the Air Force in 1968. I went to work for a bank. I was a banker, stuck with that for a while. I, went, uh, I didn't like 
doing collections. So I went into uh, sales and I was in industrial sales. I traveled, uh, actually this was part of my territory at one time up here in the North Country. And uh, where, where were you living at the time? Uh, at that time we were living in Syracuse, oh, okay. New York, yeah. But we, I was born in Malone. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, I'm from Malone. Which is how you ended up right, here now. Right, okay. back here now. <laughs> and and my, uh, my family originated in Lion Mountain. Oh, okay. So, um, then I was, uh, let's say, I was part owner of a music store for a while. I became uh, interested in car sales. I was a car salesman for a while. But then I, I went into the plumbing and heating and air, uh, air conditioning wholesale business. And that's where I ended up for my last uh, 20 years or so. Is there poetry in wholesale plumbing? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Is any of it in any of these chapbooks? Uh, yeah, uh, yes, actually, yes. There's a, uh, I have two poems about pipe <laughs> that I can think of off the top of my head. And yeah, there, there, all these things enter into into a poet's life. Everything that an honest poet will write about what he knows, of course, and and. Uh, that's what we're doing every day. Well, I guess I wonder, given all of these different things that you've done over your years, whether there's a certain kind of MFA, and if those years kind of gave you an MFA in their own way, you know, an ability to observe people from different walks of life. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah, <laughs> when when you've. Uh, when you've dealt with uh, people, uh, first you're trying to convince them of something. That's one one thing. So you you, you learn to listen, and you and uh, that's the, probably one of the more important parts of, of poetry is knowing how to listen to people, and 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 to listen to to yourself and to what's going on around you. So you're learning as you go. You learn. You you go through. Parenthood. There's, <laughs> there's a lot of things that you can write about parenthood, and and uh, even though it's poetry can sometimes be if you're not trying to get published, it can be like keeping a journal in a lot of ways. Uh, you just want to refine the language a little bit and and uh, turn it into something that's uh, a little more permanent than a, than a journal. Although journals are are pretty good, but uh, yeah, yeah, it's that's true. Do you think there's an importance in poetry in a place like this that people don't appreciate? Um, not necessarily an importance in terms of like, you know, the the subject being. We were yeah. talking about closer to the surface, but um, I mean, you've done some you've done some projects with uh, with I guess school kids yeah. here in Malone. Yeah. yeah, I did that with uh, in uh, with the Malone Middle Schools uh, with the uh, downtown art. Uh, seller, uh, Jennifer Bilo owns that, and uh, we brought in some kids, seventh and eighth graders. We taught them how to teach, how to write a small poem, and I'll tell you a little more about that. But uh, and we eventually, and then they decorated them with their art, and that's what we did. We created little poems. We put them on stickers. Four hundred of them went out into the community. And what were the kinds of things that they wrote about? Well, some kids uh, wrote about getting along with other people. Some kids wrote about nature. Some kids wrote about their what they wanted to do in the winter time. It, it, all kinds of things. All kinds of things. 
Well, and, and so you walked in the door, and, and there were some kids that had never been exposed to poetry uh, yeah. before. How did you introduce them to it? Well, I, I showed them that there's poetry in uh, some of the kids' books that they've read when they were younger. Dr. Seuss, I showed them Dr. Seuss. I showed them Shel Silverstein. And, and when they could see it, it didn't have to be something difficult, something really hard to think about. Uh, they became uh, interested, and then, and then there were some that had some pretty good insights as well. So, yeah, they showed me a few things. <laughs> so it was good. Well, yeah, and I, I that I was going to ask whether you felt like you learned a little something about uh, either about more, poetry or, yeah. or the community or both. Probably both, and probably more than they did. So <laughs> it was uh, it was very interesting. I, I had a really good time with it. When did you first get to exposed to poetry? Oh, probably uh, third grade, fourth grade back then. Um, we had teachers who liked to read poetry. We had, uh, I, I can recall, uh, sixth, my sixth grade teacher was terrific. His name was Sal Catalino, and he, he would, uh, every day he read a poem. Um, I had a principal in uh, junior high Every assembly, he would read a poem. Usually, it was Robert Serp, some kind of adventurous-sounding poem, and and uh, I was always captivated by it. I actually had a, a teacher who would, uh, most Monday mornings, he would jump up on the desk and recite a poem from memory. And yeah, yeah, those days are <laughs> you don't have those anymore. Not too many that I hear about. I have anymore. to ask my son if any of his teachers jump up on the desks and. Uh, <laughs> I was. Mis- a Mr. Warner, he was a terrific guy. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Walk me through a day in the life of the self-appointed poet laureate <laughs> of uh, Dickinson Center. When do you write? I try to write in the morning. Uh, I get up fairly early. I'm usually up and moving around around seven by seven o'clock, and I try to work for a couple hours even before breakfast. And then I uh, I read a lot. That's another thing. If you're if you're going to write poetry, you better be reading it. You'll never be that effective as a writer if you're not a reader. And uh, so I read a lot, um, and then I try to do the revision process. I do save that for later in the day. And there's I do a lot. Of, I'm a I'm a compulsive reviser. So I've got a poem. As a matter of fact, I had a poem I was working on yesterday that I uh, started in 2013. That is in its 32nd revision, so. <laughs> and your poem. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And that's not unusual. Uh, sure, I it's not some, an epic? <laughs> no, it's, it, it, you know, for all the work I put on it, it should be a lot longer than it is. But it isn't. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I hope this isn't too nosy a question, no. but I, I'm curious to, uh, you know, where where in your house do you write? What are you looking at? What is the, you know, okay. uh, do, you, do you have to... You know, do you have to shut yourself in a room? Yeah, pretty much. I, I have two places. I, I have an office. Um, it's got picture windows. I, I'm looking out over the river, the Deer River. We live there. Um, so I can, and I do, I spend a lot of time just staring out the window. Uh, but I also have a little screen house that sits right at the edge of the river. Our, our, uh, our property is got a big drop down to the Deer River. I sit there quite a bit. I can bring my paper or computer even out there and, and work. But yeah, You anticipated it. my next question, which was, do you write on a laptop or, uh, or do I, you have a I notebook? Do I do both. I write. Uh, sometimes the only way I can get to it is to get to the poem. 
is with pen and paper. Other times it comes out pretty good and, and I can work great onto a word processor, or not a word processor. <laughs> Not <laughs> I still say word processor. Technology. It's all right. <laughs> I still have four manual typewriters. Okay, so oh, see, I got rid of mine. <laughs> um, did the people, you know, the the years you were working in uh, in plumbing, wholesaling, and and selling cars, and all the other things you you did, did the people you worked with know that you were a poet at the time? They didn't. They knew I was writing. They didn't know I was. I, I would. I did newsletters for the company. Um, I, I I wrote a lot of letters to the editor. <laughs> I I uh, that was kind of crazy period, um, but then. I, and I would write stories, and sometimes I would share them. Sometimes people would ask me to write a eulogy now and then. Uh, but uh, no, I wasn't real common knowledge. I wasn't out there. Uh, I hadn't come out at that time. <laughs> you weren't doing poetry slams on the uh, car lot. No, <laughs> not a bit. <laughs> Do you think the... I don't know, 25-year-old Jim Bury, uh, who was who was writing and not necessarily sharing his poems with anybody. What do you think he would think of the Jim Bury today, who has these chapbooks in front of him and and is doing readings in public? Uh, he would probably uh, he'd probably be amazed. Actually, <laughs> at the time, it was all about. Uh, basically earning enough money so that someday my kids could go to school, college, which they did, thank you. And uh, <laughs> um, yeah, it, that wasn't in my mind too much. It didn't really get back into my mind until I was around 50 and I was looking ahead to, what am I gonna do when I retire? And, and uh, that's when I started really thinking I better, better get going on this this life so because it is a life poet it'd be you know they talk about living the poetic life uh, there is something to that you, you have to kind of slow down you have to start uh, being more and more observant you have to start listening better I was going to ask you you know we, we we're meeting up here in this uh, in this Tim Hortons in Malone and and yep. I was running you know a few minutes late and I wondered if you were sitting in the at this table kind of looking around you uh, soaking up material <laughs> sometimes I do um, I have a lot of uh, bar poems uh, <laughs> I've got a lot of poems of uh, uh, sitting in fast food places I do I, but uh, this time I was actually organizing my schedule for the next few days. So. You were not writing a poem called no. Ice Double Double. No. <laughs> no. Well, sadly, if there's no Ice Double Double, I, w I, I would love you to read something else. <laughs> okay, I can read a poem. Let's see. Well, this uh, I talked about career, so I'm going to read a career poem that I wrote. Uh, Black Iron Pipe. Stacked by diameter, the tall, smallest tight around my little finger. I could poke my head into the largest, but all the sizes were long, over 20 heavy feet each. My first job was to move the stacks. My second was to cut the pipe into equally measured pieces and machine threads on every end. We called those finished pieces nipples. I don't know why. They offered no sustenance or pleasure. In time, 
I no longer had to do hot, dirty work. It became my task to buy and sell the steel and copper and plastic lengths. I sold it by the truckload. Fancy that. Miles and miles of pipe carrying liquids, gases, and wastes of all kinds. And though it all got me somewhere, in the end, I had barely moved. Jim Burry, thank you so much. It's been, uh, it's been just great to talk to you, and here's to many more terms as the Poet Laureate of Dickinson Center. Thank you very much, Mitch. I've enjoyed it. Jim Bory is the self-appointed Poet Laureate of Dickinson Center, New York. He's published several chapbooks of poetry, including his most recent, a collaboration with Linda Blasky called Season of Harvest. Our conversation was recorded on site at Tim Hortons in Malone, New York. No Timbits were harmed in the making of this episode. Finally today, we have a chance to revisit a musical recording, a unique one from the archives. Back in the summer of 2021, we had a chance to visit with upstate New York native Trevor Gordon Hall, who was in the North Country for a concert at the Clayton Opera House. Hall joined us in what we call the NCPR Cinderblock Cafe and brought with him the unique instrument he calls a kalimbatar, a combination of a guitar and the thumb piano called a kalimba. Hall explained how his travels influence his music. I feel like at the end of the day, music for me as sort of a meeting place of all of those wonders and experiences I've had um, because it's where they all come together and have a dialogue. And so a certain melody I hear or rhythm is part of my life, whether it's something I just experienced in a place or, you know, having grown up in Rochester, New York, next to Lake Ontario, the feeling of the wind in the fall, you know, like all of that becomes something in me that I go to to when I'm, you know, composing pieces. Uh, so it's all, it's all very personal.
Trevor Gordon Hall with a song called Kalimbatar, recorded in the NCPR Cinderblock Cafe in the summer of 2021. And with that, we come to the end of this edition of Northwards. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the Northwards podcast and get an episode delivered to you every Friday from the comfort of your phone or your computer or your smart speaker. And you can subscribe to the Northwards column delivered to you in newsletter form each weekend. Find them all at ncpr.org. Digital oversight of this show comes from Ethan Shanty and Bill Hanel. Caitlin Kelly does our social media. Doyle Dean shoots video. And I am Mitch Tyke, your humble host and producer. Thank you so much for listening. Here and Now is next on NCPR, followed by Science Friday and The Beat Authority. Have a great weekend.